Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Summer's finally arrived in the Okanagan. Awesome. All of you joining us online, we are so glad to have you joining us today. It's my joy to be your pastor. You know, this week I was at the hospital making a hospital visit. And actually, can we take a moment right now? If you remember, before I came, we had an interim pastor, and his name was Pastor Ralph. Uh, Ralph is in the hospital right now. He has an old back injury, uh, some discs, and he had a flare-up, and it's actually so bad right now. He's in the hospital. Uh, he's been in there since uh, mid-last week. So let's take a moment right now and pray for Ralph. God, I just pray right now, as we are gathered in this place, where our, our faith is full. God, we've been singing about your power and your work and your love for us. God, I pray right now that you would touch Ralph. Jesus, that this back that's been tight and these discs that are bulging, God, would you comfort him right now? God, you've been treating him medically. God, we pray miraculously right now that you would be in that place with Ralph. God, just release him from this discomfort and pain. Heal him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ralph, we love you. Uh, so I'm in the hospital and I'm visiting Ralph and the porter comes in and she's got her medical mask on and she's going to take him to get a CT scan and I'm kind of asking like how long is this going to take? Should I wait for him to come back? And, and she says, yeah, it's only going to be quick so I'll, I'll wait for him. And, and so Ralph turns to her and goes, this is Jeremy. He's my pastor. And she says, I know, he's my pastor too. And I was like, <laughs> I'm still learning. She had the mask on, that's my excuse. And, and uh, she said she does a lot of shift work, so we haven't really got to meet. But, but Barb, I'm, I hope you're watching this online today. We love you, and great to have you joining us today. In May 1st, 1915, the luxury cruise ship, the Lusitania, set sail from New York City, bound for Liverpool, England. Almost 2,000 people were on board. Included among them were 144 children and babies. This was an amazing ship for the time, state of the art. It was fast, it was luxurious, it was comfortable. Little did people suspect on this voyage that it was going to be its last. Days before the ship had left New York, the Imperial German Embassy had placed a warning advertisement in 50 American newspapers, including some in New York City that read this. Notice. Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, and that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles. That, in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. Despite the ads and some worried conversations, people boarded the Lusitania, and you can still watch video on YouTube of them boarding the ship and people waving excitedly as they uh, headed off on, their, uh, on the, this uh, cruise ship, uh, as they headed off to their first-class cabins to enjoy all the food and the amenities that the ship had to offer. On May 7th, just 60 days later, near the end of her 202nd Atlantic crossing, a German U-boat spotted the ship and at 700 meters range ordered one torpedo to be fired at the Lusitania. That torpedo hit and seawater began to flood the hull and with seconds, within seconds, it began, the ship began rolling to the right. Within 18 minutes, that ship sank, killing almost 1,200 of its passengers and crew. Never before had an attack been made on a civilian vessel quite like this one. 
So even though the notice of the war being waged had been given, even though the battle lines had been clearly drawn, the setting of comfort and luxury had lulled the people into believing that the battle didn't apply to them. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the worst feelings for me is the feeling of going into something unprepared. You ever had that work meeting where you're just like, you're, you're called in, you're like, I, I'm, I'm not prepared for this meeting. Maybe you had a presentation that you're not ready for. All the kids, all the kids done exams, all the students. Where are you? Oh, there's all the students done their exams right now, right? Woohoo! Have you ever gone into a test unprepared, right? It's that sinking feeling. I actually have nightmares sometimes about being unprepared. I've woken up in a panic before thinking that I was doing a wedding or a funeral that I didn't prepare for and I was, you know, saying all the wrong names like you know how you know I woke up oh, it's a nightmare for me that's what I have nightmares about maybe you had someone ask you you know hey can we get together to talk and you're like what what do you want to talk about like I don't you know that feeling of unpreparedness it's one thing to be unprepared for a meeting or an exam I mean you know, it's another thing to be unprepared for a battle as we look at this, we're wrapping up our Made New series today, and we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians and Paul's letter that he wrote to believers in Jesus who had become part of the church family, uh, of the churches that he had planted uh, in the area of Turkey, uh, around the area of 63 AD. And, uh, and most of his writings, as uh, we see as Paul letters to the church, they're, they're written to specific churches or written to address questions or issues that have arisen, but uh, Ephesians that we, we've scene is uniquely written uh, as a summary, uh, not in response to an issue or a question, but a summary. It's a master class of Paul's theology. He's, it's a master class on how to live the Christian life. And if you remember all the way back to week one, nine weeks ago, we saw that Paul opened his letters and he, he's gushing about God. He's gushing about the grace and the goodness of God towards us and in inviting us into this uh, bigger story that God is orchestrating around us. And we talked about how we can tend to think of ourselves at times as the star of our story, right? We're the star of our story, except for what we've seen is that there are actually a bigger star to this story. And we are part of God's big story that revolves around Jesus Christ, his headlining character. 27 times throughout Ephesians, Paul, uh, he uses this phrase, in Christ, or he uh, through Christ, or with Christ. Jesus Christ is the star of the story that God's been directing since the beginning of the world. And you and I get to be the supporting cast. Isn't that amazing? How many know that the association with the star of the show comes with its privileges? We talked in week one, uh, chapter one, verse three says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. We talked about these spiritual blessings. Paul describes them, the fact that we are chosen, that we are part of God's team, that we are wanted and valued by our creator, that we are adopted, that we belong to his family and that it was done intentionally, even at great cost, that we were pursued by God. We talked about the fact that we are free from sin and free from bondage, that we've been purchased through the blood of Jesus and that we are forgiven and free. Ultimately, the privilege of being associated with Jesus is that we get God. 
We get God in our lives. We get his involvement. We get his presence and his power. We get his provision at work in us. The Bible says that every spiritual blessing is a result of God giving himself to us. So Paul's portrait of God is not this stern, disapproving, or distant God displeased with his creation and demanding retribution for every sin. Paul paints this picture of this God, this Father, who knows the effects of sin on his creation, and he knowingly and lovingly sets out to, uh, to reunite us to his family, to rectify all that is wrong in our lives. And so in week three, we talked about the theme verse of this uh, this book is Ephesians 2.10. It's my life verse, and I, how many borrowed it? You're like, remember we talked about it? Yeah, you can borrow my life verse uh, if you don't have your own. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And so through this series, we've been talking about this idea that we're not who we used to be. But we haven't just been made nice. We've been made new. And we've been talking about this idea that new way, this new life comes with new ways of living. So Paul uses the front half of this letter to talk about what we believe about God and about ourselves and our place in God's story. We talked about new ways of seeing ourselves, new attitudes, new pursuits, that we're not just settling for the lust and the addictions of our flesh. We're choosing reconciliation, unity within the church. Last week we talked about how we relate to our friends and family differently, that what began in the heavens comes to our home and affects us at the very place we live. We talked about mutual submission, right? We talked about it's never just between you and me, right? It's always us three. Ah, I thought for sure you'd remember that because it was so catchy. So new life in Christ comes with new ways of living. The question I want to ask you as you're closing out this series is what has changed about the way you live as a result of following Jesus? That's a good question for you to talk through at lunch today. What has changed about the way I live as a result of following Jesus? But this brings us to the end of the letter, the place that Paul has been aiming towards, he's been building towards. It's his final thoughts. It's his parting words and uh, and his instructions. And in his wisdom, he wants to make sure that we're not caught unaware. He wants to make sure that we're not unprepared for what's coming. See, whether the passengers and crew of the Lusitania, whether they were ignorantly, or ignorantly aware, unaware, or whether they were just willfully unconcerned, they were unprepared for the fact that they were sailing into a battle zone and their demise as a result. And that's what Paul wants to keep us from. So if you turn with me to Ephesians 6, verse 10, we're going to continue where we left off last week. Ephesians 6, verse 10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm. Everyone say, you will be able. You will be able able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able, let me hear you say it, you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil and then after the battle, you will be standing firm. How many this morning, let me hear you say, I'm still standing. 
Amen. Some of you have got it. I'm still standing. I'm pumped up today. I've been reading this all week. I'm ready to go. Have you ever had one of those days where you're like, don't try me? You know, I'm ready for a fight. I'm still standing. As Paul draws this letter to a conclusion, he leaves us with this stark reminder that this Christian life in an unbelieving world means that we're all involved in a spiritual fight. One commentator put it this way. He said the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. I've heard scoffers accuse Christianity of being a crutch for the weak. You know, a simplistic way of looking at the world and rectifying, uh, you know, uh, of reconciling the wrongs of the world. Anyone who's ever lived the Christian life knows it's so much different. It's so much easier to follow the passions and desires of your flesh. It's so much easier to live for yourself, right? But try dying to those desires. Try submitting yourself, as we talked about uh, last week, about lowering yourself to lift others up. It's the hard road. And through scripture, we see that this battle is really fought on three fronts. The Bible talks about the world. The world is this system that opposes God and the ways of God. It, it caters to the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now notice here, Paul says, we don't fight flesh and blood. When we talk about the world, we're not talking about individuals and the people, maybe your neighbor who plays the music too loud on Saturday night when you're trying to get ready for church, you know, and you're trying to sleep in. We're not talking about the people of the world. We're talking about a system. The world is society apart from God. 1 John 2 says it like this. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. So we see in here in Scripture often talking about the world as a system uh, 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 operates a counter to God. We also see in scripture that we're battling our flesh. The flesh is our old nature. It's the sinful patterns and desires that come that we inherited from Adam. And really the fleshly desire is our desire to be autonomous from God. It's okay, God, I got this. I'll make the decisions. I'll lead myself. I'll do what pleases me. Galatians 5.17 says our sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. And these two forces are constantly fighting each other. So we see in Scripture that we're battling the world. We see that we're battling our flesh. And we also see that we are battling the devil and his demons. We see here that it says we're not battling flesh and blood, that we are battling spiritual powers and authorities, principalities. Now, I'm not one to give a lot of airtime to the devil. I'd rather spend my time preaching about the goodness and greatness of Jesus rather than the devil. But I think the devil's greatest accomplishment is convincing many people that he doesn't exist. Now, I'm not talking about the guy in the little red suit with a pitchfork and like horns and a tail. That's not how it is. 
As we see in scripture that before the foundation of the world, God created archangels. And we can summarize. We don't have a, a clear teaching on the spirit world as it is, but we can put the pieces together. We see that we have uh, Gabriel and Michael, and he created Lucifer. And Lucifer was this angel of worship. Bible says that he was beautiful to behold, that he was wise and glorious. The problem is that Lucifer actually became jealous of God. As God received the glory, Lucifer wanted that glory and he became filled with pride. He eventually pitted himself against God and all of God's glory. So God cast him down from heaven and the Bible says that Lucifer took one third of the angels with him and we would know them today as the demons that we do battle with today. And so what does this matter to you? You know, as North Americans, I feel like we're not always very in tune with spiritual things. I believe as you go around the world, you'll see more openness, more attenuation to spiritual battles and principalities. But this is real. The Bible says that there is a real Satan and there's a real host of his army who are in opposition to the things of God. What you need to understand is that because you're created in the image of God, the devil hates you. Because you're following the plans and purposes of God and because God loves you, Satan despises you. And so the devil is continually coming after us. The word devil basically just means accuser. The Bible says that he sits in accusation before God about us all the time. Look at their shortcomings. Look at their sin. Look at how they fail you. They are not worthy of your love. They look at them. You know, uh, cast them out. The, the name Satan just means adversary. You have an adversary. We often see him uh, described as the tempter or the father uh, of lies. And, and this is not to say that we need to be fearful or afraid. Paul's just saying, I don't want you to be unaware or unprepared. See, our new life comes with battles. And Paul wants us to know that there's a way to win. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, I don't know about you, any, any gamers, you like video games? Uh, anyone of my generation used to play the Nintendo, the, the original NES, right? Now, this thing, I'm not very good at games. I've never really been that, that great. But, but if, even back then, like you would kind of work your way through the levels. And at the end of the level, you would meet the big boss. And you'd have to defeat the big boss, right? And you'd get like two or three lives and then it would die. And you'd have to restart all over. But then someone invented something that was, a, a, we didn't call it life hacks back in those days. Uh, but it was, a, it was a hack of sorts. It was called the Game Genie. Anyone know what the Game Genie is? Any, anyone of that generation? They gave a couple people that are like, yeah, I'm not acknowledging that I'm that old. All right? The Game Genie was a disc, and you would put the Game Disc into the Game Genie disc, and then you put the Game Genie disc into the console, and that would allow you to enter cheat codes uh, so that you could win the game. You could get unlimited lives, you could get unlimited power, you could get anything that you needed to defeat the big boss. Right? Now, I know you guys are just like, Jerry, you're aging yourself right now. But, but here's the thing. I was thinking through that we have a cheat code in how to win this spiritual battle. We have a game genie of sorts. Jesus isn't a genie, but today I'm calling him the game genie. Because when you get plugged into Jesus, you get the cheat codes that enable you to have the unlimited resources to beat the devil in all his plans and purposes against you. Let me hear you say, I'm still standing. 
See, our source of spiritual strength and power is from being connected to Jesus. It's not something that we produce. You can't come to church enough to earn the strength you need to live this Christian life. You can't pray enough. You can't read the Bible enough. It comes from being connected to Jesus. And all your prayers and all your readings are meant to draw you closer to him. But here's the thing. Jesus has already won the victory on all three fronts of our faith, of our fight. Jesus won the victory in all three fronts. Listen to what the Bible says. Jesus overcame the world. John 16, 33. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. You don't need to be afraid. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. You can put the word battles in there. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus has already won the battle against the world. Jesus has already overcome our flesh. Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old sinful selves are crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus overcame the world. He overcame our flesh. And he has overcome the devil in his demons. Colossians 2, 15 says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Church, I want you to know this morning that we are not fighting for victory. We're not fighting for victory. That battle has already been won. That battle has been won. That battle is the Lord's. Paul says, stand firm in the Lord and in his mighty power. The battles that we fight aren't for victory. They're from victory. The battles we fight are against a defeated foe. Now, I've been watching the NBA Finals. Anyone watch, you know, the basketball? Uh, if you watch basketball, this is what I noticed. Sometimes one team would be up so big, they would have the, the, the game won so badly, they'd have so many points, that what they would do is that they would say, you know what, there's like three minutes left in this game, but there's no way we're going to lose, so let's put in the bench. They would take all the star players out, and they would put in the, the, the backups, you know? And I was thinking, Jesus has already won this game. He's already, he's already racked up the score that is instrumental. He has won the victory. Now God is saying, all right, church, now you go. You're the backups. You go and you live out. Go finish this game that Jesus has already won for you. Scripture is clear that Satan has already been overcome. He's already lost the battle. But this is one thing I know about Satan is that he's a sore loser. How many have ever played with a sore loser? You know, when there's no chance of winning, what do they try to do? Says that scripture says that Satan's goal is to disrupt, to dissuade, to distract. He's trying to, uh, to get everyone and everyone, uh, anyone, he's trying to distract them from what God wants for their lives. And he's trying to reach as, uh, wreak as much havoc and chaos as he can. That's what a sore loser does. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory against a defeated foe. Here's the thing about standing firm against Satan's strategies, is that we already have his playbook. He, we already have his playbook. We know what his approach is. In John 8, 44, it says, he has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil, for as successful as he appears to have been throughout the course of history, is really a one-trick pony. 
He's only got one play. And although it's presented in many ways, uh, he's only ever been able to deceive and to destroy by manipulating and twisting and discrediting the truth. That's his play. That's his play. See, the source of our spiritual strength and power is from being connected to Jesus, not something we produce. You know, spiritual strength isn't something that we could work up or try harder at or make it a New Year's resolution. It only comes from staying close to Jesus and walking in his truth. Ephesians 6, 14 says, Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes put on peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. And in addition to all these things, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul says, put on the belt of truth. Arm yourself with the things and the character of God. Pick up the sword of the Spirit. Pick up the word of God and apply it to your life. You know, a friend of mine, he, he has a, a, a great way, I think, of, of applying how do we fight the devil? How do we actively engage truth and fight the lies of our world and our flesh and the devil? How do we actually do this in our lives? And, and uh, I want to talk to you today about uh, my five. Some of you have already heard me talk about this one-on-one. I want to talk to you about my five. My five, five keys to standing your ground in the battle against sin. Everyone take your left hand. I want to talk to you about my five. So if you have five fingers, you're in good shape. If you've lost a finger along the way, uh, this might not work for you. I don't know. My five. The first one is the thumb. Everyone get your thumb. Wait, if I see you and I give you thumbs up, that's recognition, right? I'm recognizing you. Good job. Good job. Thumbs up. Recognize. The first key to defeating the lies of the enemy is to recognize. Recognize that it's a lie. That what you are thinking or believing isn't true. It's not what God says about you. It's the lie of the enemy. You have to recognize. But what happens when you get a little feisty? Anyone ever been a little feisty? When you get feisty, then you get your finger all up in someone's business, right? You begin to resist them. You start saying, I'm going to, this is a lie. Don't talk to me like that. What you're saying, right? You get a little feisty out there. Say, this is a lie. Don't talk to me like that, right? And then they get to the third finger, which is, don't put that one up. It's rejection. If you've ever been given the third finger, you know that it's a form of rejection. We need to reject the lies of the enemy. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) Reject the lies of the enemy. We have to recognize it. We got to resist it. We got to reject it. We say this is not the truth that God declares about me. The fourth finger is this ring finger. Now, it's not just enough to reject a lie, but we have to replace it with the truth. This ring finger, I have a ring on my finger that it reminds me that I'm no longer who I used to be. I'm married now. I have a commitment. I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife. This finger reminds me that I'm not who I used to be. I've been made new. I'm in a covenant relationship with Jesus who loves me, who cares for me, who has already fought this battle for me, who believes the best in me, who has created me. I'm his masterpiece with a plan and a purpose. How many know we need to replace the truth with the lie? 
It's not enough. Yes. Thank you. Just She's recognizing the lie. We need to replace the lies with the truth of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> That's right. Pay attention. It's good. Always question what the pastor's teaching you. Make sure it aligns with the word of God. You have to say no. See, the, the, here's the thing, though. The key to self-control, if you've ever been on a diet or you've ever had you know, something you're trying to change about your life, the key to self-control is to not continuously be saying no. The key to self-control is to have a bigger yes. It's not enough for me to be saying no to something and depriving of myself. The thing is that I'm saying yes to something that's bigger and greater. You know, I always say I want to be running to something and not running from something. It's not, if, if I say no, eventually a craving is going to come along that just overpowers my willpower. But when I'm saying yes to something greater, that's what gives me the courage and that gives me the, the tenacity to push on. So I'm saying no to shame and saying yes to Jesus' freedom. I'm saying no to uh, isolation and yes to Jesus' fulfillment. I'm saying no to emptiness. I'm saying yes to the purpose that God has for me. And the last thing is the pinky finger. How many know of all your fingers, it's the weakest one? If you ever try to take your groceries in, you know, in one shot, you know, you got all the bags and you know that pinky finger can't really hold a lot, right? That finger needs to rely on all the others. The pinky reminds me that I need to rely on Jesus. I'm too weak to do this on my own. As I rely on Jesus and I walk this through, I recognize the lie, I resist it, and I reject it, and I replace it with the truth, and I just say, Jesus, I'm gonna rely on you in this moment. What does it look like for me to rely? When I've maybe gone other ways and turned to other things, what does it look like for me to rely? When these cravings come, when these temptations come, how can I rely on you, Jesus? Here's the thing. Whenever someone sits in my office and they say, Pastor Jeremy, I don't know how I ended up in this place. How many know that you never just fall into sin? You never just fall into temptation. Usually always I could say, what lie are you believing right now? And we walk it back. When did you stop relying on Jesus? When did you stop replacing that truth, the lie with the truth? When did you stop rejecting it? And you got back to this place where you don't even recognize it anymore. We walk it backwards. When we fight Satan by putting my five in place and coming to this place and saying, Jesus, what is the truth that you declare about me? Ephesians 6, 18, to finish this chapter, it says, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for believers everywhere. Now, I don't know if you can tell a little bit. I'm a little feisty this morning. I've been with this passage all week, just stirring up my spirit and praying about what God would want to do. I, I feel this morning that we, we might need to have a little bit of a fight this morning, right? I said, like, don't test me. Don't test me today. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm not unprepared. I'm ready. I'm stirred up, prayed up. I felt in our worship today that we were stirred up and prayed up. What I want to do is just create an opportunity for us to do a little bit of fighting. Where we would do, where you talked about fighting our battles in that song, we, we praise and we pray and we turn our hearts and we align ourselves to Jesus. So this morning I'm going to invite you to stand all across this place. And I just want to create an opportunity for us to do a little prayer, prayer fight today. You know, some of you have some needs that you've been battling with. 
There's some things that are, have been big obstacles in your life. And so what we're simply gonna do is the band's gonna lead us in worship. The prayer team's gonna come and they're just gonna line up here at the front. And if you gotta go, you gotta go. There's no pressure. I know you got places to be. I got uh, all kinds of things. But for the next few moments, I wanna create a place of worship. I wanna create a place of prayer. This is what I wanna encourage you to do. We haven't done this a lot, uh, but in the old days, we used to call it an altar call. There used to be this place where we would put action to our faith. We would step out from where we were and we would come to the front and we would have this prayer. I just want you to know that this front space isn't more anointed at the front unless you're in the splash zone when I'm preaching. There's a bit of a splash zone and uh, I see that. But what I want you to do is say, we're gonna create this front place as an altar and if you wanna come, I just wanna encourage you to step out of your seat, come to the front, come and pray. Make that an action step of Jesus. I'm aligning myself with you. I'm ready to do battle. And we're just gonna pray and we're gonna praise and we're going to just let God work his way in our lives. If you, if you can't come to the front, if you want a social distance, you can stay where you are. That's fine. That's totally cool. But, but I wanna encourage you, if you wanna come, let's fill this altar space with prayer. Let's begin to pray and ask God to fill our hearts and our minds. So I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come right now. And uh, they're gonna be here right at the front. And if you want prayer with someone, they would love to pray with you. Uh, if you don't want to pray specifically with someone, you can fill in the spaces in front of these chairs, uh, in the wings over there. We're just going to create an atmosphere of prayer and worship today. So Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you put this feisty spirit in us. Lord, it's the spirit of God that fights the power of the enemy, that does our battles. You've already won the battle. God, that we are fighting from this place of victory today. And so I pray for every person here, God, that every obstacle they're facing, God, whether every health challenge, God, whether every financial need, God, as we lay those down at, you, at your feet, God, as we do battle, Lord, for the thoughts of our minds, as we are renewed and transformed in our thinking, Lord, help us to spot the lies that we've been believing and acting on, Jesus, and that we would uh, let your truth take hold in those areas of our life. In Jesus' name we pray.